Hi, this is an unexpected launch. It's a show about stories and the people behind them. Stories of individuals who've unexpectedly navigated a life circumstance. These are stories of resilience, of courage, community. These are stories of lives being reimagined, rewritten, and rebuilt. Hi, I'm Kirsten Duncan, and today I'm speaking with Markina. Markina is a breast cancer survivor, and she has been rocking her way through this pandemic with her air guitar. Today, Markina and I are going to be speaking about cancer, authenticity, and embracing the weird. Markina is a daughter, a mother, she's an author, a TEDx speaker, and she's a competitive air guitarist. And in 2015, Markina was diagnosed with breast cancer and her life as she knew it came to, to a halt. And her creativity was her gift in helping her to heal and ultimately help others through their cancer journey. She created the Glam Chemo Project. She also created the Women's Empowerment Project at Weill Cornell. She's launched, launched a support program called Share Triumph. And she's written a book, Tough stories of women who survived cancer. Markina, you and I share a passion around sharing stories, and I'm so excited to welcome you to an unexpected launch. Yay, thank you so much, Kirsten. I'm so excited to be here. That was an excellent intro. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, I'm just gonna dive right into 2015 when you received a cancer diagnosis. Can you take us back to, to that moment? Sure. You know, it, it's been almost five years, but it's it's it was such a moment of absolute shock. In reality, I I didn't expect it to be cancer. I actually heard the word malignant and thought, no, 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 I must I must not know the definition of that word. So, um, and it was so shocking because I didn't even have a primary care doctor. I've always been healthy. I didn't. I, you, when you have cancer, sometimes you don't feel sick. You feel exactly like you know you feel pretty much fine. That was just a little lump, and so. Um, to hear you have cancer, and then the the doctor said it was actually a, my gynecologist uh, that could call, and he uh, he said uh, you really need to um, you need to find a, you need to talk to your surgeon. And I'm like I don't, I don't even know what you mean. I've never had a surgeon. I, I don't. It was so shocking. Um, I know exactly where I was standing. I was standing in the kitchen, and it's um, I I just froze. I didn't know what to do next. Uh, I, I think I, I Googled immediately, which is, I don't recommend, <laughs> but uh -huh. um, it, was, it, was, it was absolutely shocking. And I kept thinking I needed a second opinion and it wasn't true, actually. Um, you know, I remember reading exactly what you just shared, that your, your gynecologist suggested that you contact your, your surgeon. And I think about how, how terrifying it is to receive a, a cancer diagnosis. And I think we're so ill-prepared to know what those steps are. How do you find a surgeon? How do you know if, if the surgeon is good? How do you know if it's a breast surgeon who's up on the latest information? And so that was one of those things that really stood out to me that, you know, patients hear these, these sort of these next steps, but really have no framework for how to make that next step happen and what to do. Yeah, absolutely. And at the time, I actually asked for a referral and just called the surgeon and got the next appointment available. And I'm like, I think I did it in the exact same day. Like, uh, there is a time you're in absolute shock, but um, this actually from speaking to over 100 uh, sur cancer survivors of different types, there's a moment where you go into like action mode. And so you think, okay, what's the next step? What am I going to do? And so I did get a referral to a surgeon and had brought my husband at the time 
to help me process some of the information. But um, that appointment was incredibly uncomfortable. And so I'm not going to name the hospital or the surgeon, but um, he basically looked me up and down and was like, eh, you got plenty of time. We're going to cut both breasts off. And uh, yeah, you know, and you don't have enough fat to like use your own skin tissue. So he like pinched my body, told me that I was, I didn't, I still didn't fully believe I had cancer, but he pinched my body, told me um, I didn't have enough fat. And like, sometimes it's not good to be thin to, to make breasts out of my own tissue and that we'll just cut both of them off, you know, and, you know, think about it though, um, what size you want to be. And I'm all like, are you kidding me? So, um, I left there in shock, only understanding that I need to get a flu shot basically. And everything else I thought was complete BS. And, um, so after that, um, I did thankfully have a friend, uh, named Jennifer Bolstead, who was the only young person, young woman that I knew. And she, I, I called her, um, and I said, what, what is this? What am I up against? And she was the first person to tell me, yep, this is real. Um, you can get a second opinion. Here's where I went. And then I did have another friend, uh, uh, who ended up, uh, really explained who was and is still, uh, a, a breast surgeon. And she, she really outlined it for me and was the only person. If I hadn't had that personal connection to her though, I don't know that I would have believed her for example, or, um, but she basically said, here's how breast cancer could develop and here's how it could spread. And um, I'm not naming her just because I don't know if she would want me to, but she's the best. And she's still, as far as I understand, practicing here in New York. And um, she's the one that found that um, by giving me an a exam, uh, you know, they, they, a breast exam with field, that um, when I saw her at Wild Cornell at the time, she found that the cancer had spread by finding a, a lymph node. So the first doctor who completely wrote off me as basically a person at all, or a woman at all, um, she was like, well, just cut them off, you'll be fine. She found that it had spread to a lymph node, so I was actually stage two and not stage one. If I hadn't gone to her and he would have just done the surgery, um, I could have been stage four because it could have spread. So it's just so interesting how you just don't know, you know, you have to be comfortable and believe the doctors that you have. And um, it's a really, really hard and bumpy initial initial process it happens so fast in about a month you get a whole bunch of vocabulary thrown at you and have to make very very major decisions about what to do with your body yeah so you you you're in the kitchen you receive the diagnosis it's 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 breast cancer what what did you feel in that moment that you heard that shock and fear um, I thought I w- it was a death sentence. And, and actually, again, from doing interviews over a period of time, and just I w- I've been a leader at some cancer camps, and um, you realize that people can live with this disease. Um, so, so it's not the death sentence that we went, once thought it was. Mm-hmm. So you said that you, you felt fear. What, what did you fear? Leaving, well, leaving my son. He was three and a half at the time. And I really wanted to be there for him, of course, and mm-hmm. and just everything about my life. You know, it. I I feared I, the pain, the the fact that my whole body would change again. You know, you're, you're. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but when you're pregnant, your body changes in such positive ways. You know, mm-hmm. you have a whole new appreciation for your body, and and it. Um, in some ways, cancer is the opposite. Your body is going to change, and be. You're gonna. And you are going to change and be new, and and it, and it and really, and this is also where the creativity comes in. 
how you react to that and how you can respond in these times of complete uncertainty, which honestly, because of the pandemic, we're in more and more again, you, it really can define how that experience, if you look back on it with trauma or you look back on it as a period of growth, and it can, again, super hard to do in that first month when you're trying to figure out what the heck is my is really happening with my body and my treatment plan, et cetera. But there, there comes a time where you, you need to decide what to either take from it as much as you can and, and how to expand yourself and, and grow and change mm-hmm. with it. So when you receive a cancer diagnosis, I mean, it's, it's so overwhelming. You're now not only managing your life, but you have to manage this disease, which for many of us who, you know, you hear cancer diagnosis, you do, your mind initially goes to a death sentence. So your life as you know it, it stops in its tracks. What did that look like for you? Uh, so I was working full time and, uh, and taking care of my son or working part time, actually. Uh, and, uh, I didn't know if I could go to work. So, so this is where, uh, you know, for me and what happened to me, it can be different from everyone else that I interviewed, but it, it, I, I found that I was told I could probably, if I could still go into the office and work during treatment for as long as I, I could. So in the sense, your life halts for like, basically for me, the entire month of October was just back-to-back appointments almost every day. And then once you get into the rhythm of your, your treatments, there's actually, for me, there was two weeks or a week and a half or so between treatments where I could go to work oh, if I felt good enough. And I was supposed to, and one of the doctors was very helpful to say, like, don't, don't lay on the couch and feel sorry for yourself. Keep moving. Do as much as you can because that will be better for you and your overall psyche. So, so yes. Your, your life, you're kind of put in this holding pattern where you're taking it day by day and the cancer treatments get uh, worse and harder, you know, your body wears down over time. So actually, um, the first one, they hopped you up on steroids. So I was kind of like, I got this one. I got this. Oh, I mean, I was sleeping. I was so, I was so, <laughs> no, it was terrible. But then you, you crash like two yeah. days later and, uh, and it's, and you're in the pit of despair with a headache and body aches and bone pain and, um, so it's, um, you're kind of riding these waves of, of how you feel uh, and, and trying to figure out on a day-to-day basis what your body's capable of and mm-hmm. if you should push it that day or not, or if you just need to rest or if you just need to cry. So um, yes, it's very, I don't know. I have to say, I kind of feel like, like um, I would never wish this on, on anyone, but this, this kind of pandemic set situation where we really have so many unknowns is kind of like the onset of a, of a diagnosis where you have no idea if it will end, when it will end. Um, and so I don't wish this on anyone. And here is, we're all experiencing something right. that's similar to our life has stopped and how we, how we move forward is completely unknown. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading your book, so I've been in the field of oncology for 20 plus years, and it's something that I feel like I know a fair amount about. However, I know about it from the medical side and much less so from uh, what it's like to live that experience. And one of the things that came through to me in that book, um, your book, Tough, was the, the amount of time that managing cancer takes, whether it's appointments for monitoring, whether it's an infusion, whether it's a checkup, whether you develop a side effect and you now need to go see another physician or another specialist. And so it really gave me an appreciation listening to all of these incredible stories 
at the incredible impact that this takes just from a time perspective. And that, that doesn't even account for the emotional perspective. And so as you are, are mourning the loss of your old life where you're working and you're being a mom and you're doing these things that, that bring you fulfillment, you understandably start feeling depressed and you're just uncertain as to how you're going to take your life back. And you realize that it's going to be through creativity that you're going to be able to take some small steps to regaining who you were. And it was through this creativity that you you move forward. So could you share a little bit about what that was like? Sure. So as I briefly mentioned, it, there's you have your treatment days, and then there's this time in between where you try to figure out what you, what you want to do, uh, who you are again, and, and how to move forward. So for me, I thought... Um, I, I had, a, so the chemotherapy sessions are between six and eight hours where you're sitting there, you know, just having these drugs, I had chemo port pumped into your chest and, um, it tastes like metal. They're disgusting. So uh, you can taste it when they pump it in here. It's gross. Okay. But while you're in this little space, so the first one I went to, I was just trying to figure out, like, just trying to figure out what, what is this even going to be about? So I didn't do anything creative at the first one. My, my husband at the time came with me. Um, but I thought, man, I'll go crazy if I'm just sitting here. Like people are crying, uh, it's, it's sad. Uh, and I thought I, I will go, I can't, I don't want to just bring my laptop and work. What could I make out of this time? So, uh, I ended up, I have a, a really great friend named with, uh, Casey Fashion, who's a wonderful photographer. And, uh, he introduced me to a makeup artist, Eden DiBianco. And with them together and then some donations from friends for gowns, uh, gowns and clothes and crowns and just goofy stuff. Uh, uh, I created a photo project where I would make characters. This also comes a little bit from Air Guitar. Air Guitar, you create a character and a persona, and you have a stage, which is whatever size space that it is, because you're, you've, you know, stages that are big, stages that are small. Um, so I thought, okay, I've got this little space, and what can I make in here? Who could show up here? And my first idea was actually queens, because they're very regal, and I was just going to sit very prim and proper. But that didn't feel like me. So instead, I made quirky characters uh, that's, that's uh, you know, glam characters. So I did a kind of a glam rock chemo. I did it called it glam chemo, and I wore sequins, and uh, and I was gifted a bunch of different clothes. Uh, my brother and I reenacted our childhood photos for some of them. So I turned every session into a different, a different person that would show up that day. And actually... The sessions were fun, and I laughed. Oh, and then when Eden wasn't doing my makeup, she would do the makeup of other people if they wanted. Uh, and once it was her birthday, and I brought in cupcakes, and I brought in enough that I could share, like cut them up with the staff and um, and share them around. I mean, a lot of times cancer patients don't want to eat sugar anyway, so it wasn't, you know. But anyway, I, you know, being generous and putting a smile on someone's face and saying hi is important. So, so just um, in the weeks in between each chemotherapy session, thinking of who could I be and seeing who, who would donate something for me to wear or what it, it, it allowed me to reach out to friends and talk about what I was doing without just talking about how sad it is that you have cancer. So like, uh, I had a friend go wig shopping with me, um, and I'll wear one later. And, uh, so it's, uh, what can I say? It, it, it gave me a different reason to talk to someone because I would cry every time I told somebody I had cancer. But if I could say, ooh, but do you want to help? Like, do you want to think through something with me? I'm going to, this time I'm thinking, Red, what, what can I do with that? And then it just changed the conversation and, and showed other people how I wanted to, to approach things. So 
And also the photos, which ended up being in People magazine, they, they, I didn't actually think that would happen. Like they were not going to be public. I didn't even think I was going to post them on Facebook or anything. They were going to just be for me. Uh, but it turned out they, when I, um, when I finally did announce kind of publicly on Facebook that I had cancer, I used one of those, those pictures and it, and it resonated so much. And then it kind of got shared quite a bit and and it ended up being something that people found inspiring, but I have to say, I did not expect that either. So uh, talk about unexpected, you know? So sometimes when you're just being true to who you are and yourself and reaching out to others, you never know how wonderful it can actually be. And when you're authentic and, and, and available emotionally to speak to others, about what you're doing and how they're doing too. So it was pretty awesome in the end. Well, the I don't look back at the chemo chair with fear. I don't, some people are like traumatized to get, to go to that, their hospital. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not. So helps a lot. The pictures are, they're, they're phenomenal and they're powerful. So, you know, typically a, a chemotherapy infusion room is not a place where there's a lot of celebration or lightheartedness happening. So how did, how did other patients who are, were receiving their infusions and, and the caregivers who were um, accompanying them, how did they respond to that? So, so I was a little worried. So I would kind of hide all of my clothes on the first couple times I'd come in. And then um, people would see the, the staff thought it was great in the sense that, you know, I was, I was upbeat and excited to be there, which I might have been the only person. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and so they would actually, in between bags of, of chemo drugs, they would unhook me so I could change clothes in the bathroom and come back. So they helped quite a bit and became really good friends. And so when you're on the, the schedule, you kind of get to know the people that are going to be sitting around you. So they would be like, ooh, Martina, what, you wear, what are you wearing this time? Well, you know, so it kind of it ended up making a small community out of this. And um and other people would share what they're doing. So some of them had T-shirts that people had given them that said warrior and whatnot, or a bracelet, or to be like, look what I got. And so it, it just it opened me up to even talking to people in the in the on the floor with me as well. I love I love that. And um, you know, you had another project, and this was the Women's Empowerment Project that you started at Wild Cornell. And you used, bought, you brought in artists who used paint to use women with cancer, their bodies as a canvas. Tell me how you came up with this idea and then what was that experience like? Because you ultimately, though I don't believe it was planned, go into Central Park to take pictures yeah. with these women and they're, they're phenomenal pictures. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Again, another unexpected thing happened at us. So the Women's Empowerment Movement Project is it. So so I got, I had been, uh, become friends with the Wild Cornell PR people and um, the events directors in, uh, at, the, at the hospital. And in so doing, I thought I would do an annual project. And we were starting to brainstorm what is possible. Uh, as we do that, you know, as I go out in the world, I might have, I, I think I met someone, there was a photographer that used to take pictures outside of a, um, uh, in Soho near my office, and his and his girlfriend at the time was a bo- was a body artist, and just in talking to them, I thought that's it. This is cool. So she uh, and her friends ended up. There's a, a wonderful and beautiful artist community that that does really wonderful body art, and I hope that um, you can add the links maybe when this is posted on YouTube or wherever whatnot. Because um, I really do want to su- continue to support them. They they donated their time, and they they created 
beautiful canvases out of these women that, that chose to be part of the, the project at Well Cornell. So we advertised all over the hospital in an email blast, and then people would set up sessions. There were four artists, and then they'd rotate through. So four women were in the room at once, basically topless, being painted. But the reason that that ended up being awesome, things that I didn't expect again, was that as those four women are there, they're talking about why they're there and why they chose to be there. And some were saying goodbye to their breasts before they were going to they were about to have surgery. Some were all scars and just wanted to find a way to express that beautifully again. And and others had, had just different reasons. They just wanted to do something new. And, and for the most part, we're all trying to get used to our bodies again. And so painting them and making them beautiful was, was one part of it. But also the discussion in the room became like a therapy session where everyone it was like a group therapy and it was interesting so I wasn't being painted um so I got to kind of uh and also because of hip-hop I couldn't know who was really going to come into the room so I know nothing about them but you know uh I talked to everybody so I would say oh what are you uh, what's your diagnosis when did you find out and, and then I would bring in someone else's conversation so I, all I had to do was like start two people talking and then everyone was talking it was great just great. Everything about it was great. And then, um, and then Casey again took photos of the women. And uh, Wild Cornell made a book, a mm-hmm. photo book that that um, uh, you know it wasn't it, it, for donations and, and etc. And it was just it's just their Wild Cornell photo book uh, to show another interesting project that they did to support women in the uh, in the breast center. Um, I'm trying to think of it. It's just um, everything about that. Oh, and, and you said going to Central Park. So at the end, I did get painted. I did choose to get painted, and uh, uh, and then we're all like feeling super empowered. And why we have some time? <laughs> so one of one of the ladies, her name is Dana. She's amazing, Dana Bledsoe. Um, she's on Instagram and, and is very very vocal in the breast cancer community. She's stage four. She's metastatic and incredibly positive, awesome woman. She's like, I want to parade down the streets like this, and I was like, yeah. And then we said, that's probably dangerous. What if <laughs> we cover ourselves up, get in a cab, and just find a couple places in Central Park and, like, basically flash everyone and run? So we were like, okay. So you, and, 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 and the other funny thing about, about having had cancer, and you're, in some ways, you're, fear, you're fear, afraid of recurrence, but you're not as afraid of some other things like new experiences or, you know, being arrested. So we did it. We just ran around. We ran in Central Park and then... And then we'd cover ourselves up with the, they gave us, um, like, gowns, like, big hospital gowns. We're running around with body paint hospital gowns in Central Park being like, all right, here's a good place. Take the, take the gown. And we'd be like, God, you know, it was just so crazy. And, and again, you know, it's just when you're, you're sharing joy. And again, it wasn't my idea. Dana's idea. And we just changed it into something that made sense for, for the ones that wanted to go and to get to the next level. It was so fun. So much fun. Well, I think it's incredible because during the cancer journey and during treatment, there are a lot of really dark, challenging moments. And and to be able to be in this experience and find this unexpected joy and this new experience, I mean, I'm pretty certain that most of you wouldn't have thought to be topless, painted, and go to take pictures in, in Central Park. And so what a powerful and empowering experience. Yeah. Um, but that, we all just met each other. We didn't know each yeah. other. We're like, but we've been, we spent an afternoon topless, so let's go for it. <laughs> Best friends forever after that. <laughs> we are, though. We really are. I'm, well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Well, I think both the the two projects that we've just discussed brings to mind something that I wanted to explore with you. And, you know, when you were doing the Glam Chemo Project, how you felt on the outside and what you were projecting really wasn't what you were feeling on the inside in that moment. And I think this is an important issue in our culture, and it's that focus on the external and the forgetting of that person who is suffering inside. And, And we as sufferers often hide that to make other people feel more comfortable or it's okay. It's like you do more to make other people feel okay about yourself. And so how do we reconcile who people think we are with who we truly are and and maybe the more important question is how do we reconcile who we are with who we are projecting that's a really interesting and difficult question uh i think um i think it's really hard to be authentic when there are a lot of societal and social pressures to be a different way i mean I also, like, um, I used to hide, for example, my air guitar personas. After after I had Lorenzo, I thought I couldn't do that anymore. I thought I needed to grow up and be this, you know, kind of a typical wife type of a person and, and kind of a typical person that goes to work, and I needed to retire my air guitar. Like, I had to take that air guitar off and hang it up. And um, I don't I don't feel that way anymore. So, so because of cancer and because... It really forced me to look at who I am, what do I value. Um, I chose what I value are my friendships. And the to have a close and deep friendship, you need to share something of yourself, but also listen. So I think a whole, I think a whole, a big part of it is, is being able to be vulnerable and say, I mean, I went to therapy several times now, actually, but I don't need to talk about it so much. But if I do tell you, you know, I went, I've been to therapy, you know, if, you, if you're struggling, don't feel that you, you, you can't also consider it. Um, then somebody will say, oh, I've also been therapy or, you know, and, I'm ex- and actually in terms of, um, just, I don't know, just, I really think that there's a back and forth there of, of being open, but also listening. And I think when you find that balance, it, it will help to answer your question as best you could. It'll help you be authentic inside and out. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, from my experience, the more authentic I got about sharing things that were uncomfortable or scary to share, the more meaningful my relationships ultimately became. And I think by me being vulnerable, it gave space for somebody else to share something that maybe they didn't feel so comfortable sharing before. And it's so scary to put that out there. But I think what comes back is so powerful and ultimately drives that deep connection. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. 100%. So um, you you wrote your book, Tough, and you interviewed 37 women with various types of cancer. And in doing so, you really provided them a platform to share their, their lowest moments, but yet their highest triumphs. How did writing the book impact your life? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I, I tried to write my own memoir and it was, it was terrible. So, so <laughs> I couldn't get behind. Well, I'm a book marketer for a li- for a living, and I couldn't get behind my own story. So I didn't, it, it was cathartic, but I, it sucked. It really did. I'm a terrible writer, to be totally honest. And, and I I my process of healing 
I had been to talk to other people. I'd done something called Project Koru, um, and they uh, they were a they're a, a, a camp, an adventure camp, we'll say, because they do. Uh, I I went to the surf in Maui. They also do rock climbing and other types of events. Uh, so through that and listening to so many stories, I thought, well, I I thought first of all that I was going to do an interview project to encourage other people to write their own memoir. That's what I was doing. So I talked to people thinking, like, I'm going to give you your transcript. It's going to be, you're not going to start with a blank page. Go write your memoir. Uh, but they didn't, and they didn't want to. So they thought, well, you're a book marketer. Why don't you, why don't you, or actually, I, I talked to, actually, it was Molly, Molly Grace, who's still an awesome friend of mine. She has, she has the YouTube channel, the Unsinkable Molly Grace, and she did these amazing lip sync videos in her chair. Like, so I did a glam chemo. She did lip sync. She's so good. She's an opera singer for a living. She's amazing, but she didn't have a voice. So, okay, just go to her YouTube channel. But um, in talking to her, I thought we came up with this idea that we would I would create a collection. So I actually interviewed over 100 women, and um, 37 of them ended up in the book. So it's a lot of trust, first of all, to, to yeah. share your story and to record it. So I gave them the option to not have me do anything with it, just have this as an artifact. And a lot of people took me up on that, and it was fine. But then... As it progressed uh, over the course of about a year, I did find 37 women that were, okay, very diverse from different stories. So the book, uh, Tough, has, the age range is about 19 to 42. Uh, that's the uh, women of different types of cancer from different parts of the United States. So that's, those are the parameters of the book. And, and it's gotten, again, I was scared to publish it. I thought... You know, maybe there's enough books out there, but it's gotten such great feedback, and I'm, I'm so thankful. Well, it's an incredible book, and, and on your website, Share Triumph, there are, as you mentioned, not necessarily, so in addition to the women who shared their stories in your book, women are also, you are giving them that platform to continue to share their stories, and I think it's a great resource, and, and in fact, I wanted just to say for anybody who does have cancer, who's seeking resources, or has a friend who has cancer, you have incredible resources on your website, Share Triumph. So I, I want to make sure that people know that. Thanks. And I will put links to that, of course, in, in the show notes. Um, what do you think? Go ahead. There are a lot of interviews. They don't have to buy the book. The, yeah. There's a pop-up that has a whole virtual conference. They, you could just listen to some of the, the It's an interview similar to this. Um, so a lot of the content can be received for free. And that was a big part of what I wanted to do. Yeah. Go ahead, Kirsten. <laughs> well, you know what, it, it kind of playing up on that. Um, why do you think that telling our stories is so important? Oh, I think it's, I hope we've learned we're very social creatures. I think that's how we grow and continue to understand ourselves is through uh, this, this back and forth with other people. I, I absolutely believe that. And I, we have to, we're, we're definitely social creatures and you, we need each other. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, I mean, there were so many things that I found fascinating about your book, but one of the themes that really stuck with me was, I think we all know that going through cancer therapy is, it's a grueling process. It is, it's hard to manage. You don't feel well physically. It's such an emotional toll. It takes a toll on all of your relationships. What really I found interesting in this book was many of the women talked about thinking, okay, I've made it through my cancer treatment. I'm fine. I'm like, I'm just ready to get back to life. 
but they found that they really struggled with that emotional healing and and that sort of after the treatment part, once you're in remission um, or once your disease is no longer progressing. And so how do you, you must think about this, what is it like to live each day wondering or being fearful that your cancer might recur? Mm-hmm. So... So I used actually even before, before the pandemic, I, I saw even that recently I've had another shift. So I used to live in like a mild fear, kind of like an elephant in the room or emotional elephant, you know, uh, that it would recur. And I've had like a lump in my sternum and I've had also another, other, other lumps that needed to be biopsied since. And, and it, the fear is there. Uh, and especially when people think you're, you're fine now, move on a lot of us are, are less fine when after active treatment. So there are a lot of programs and resources. Camp Coro, uh, First Ascents are a couple of them that bring, uh, y- these are again younger adventure camps, that, that bring people like us at, uh, together just to have a place where we can admit that we're not all okay. We're not okay yet. Still not okay. We can't go back to who we were. We might look similar maybe. We might, we might not. But we can't go back. So, um, I don't know, it's just uh, uh, finding someone to talk to. Like, I have a cancer buddy also that I've never even met. She's, she's in the book, but I've never met her. And we only know each other because we um, were in a Facebook group together. And then and, and happened to just, she had the same diagnosis with me and had children about the same age and, and were, were really close. And I'm, I'm, I, and even though we haven't met in person. But uh, I think having those kinds of maybe one or two people that you can just be super honest about when you're not okay is crucial. Yeah. Well, and another thing I think that your book does, because you pull from such a diverse group of women, um, you know, a lot of women were very young when they were diagnosed um, or they had young children and that isn't the typical cancer patient. And so there was a lot of struggling around what is, what does my treatment look like or what does my diagnosis mean? Because I don't see anybody out there like me. And so I think that's one of the things that your book beautifully does is it's it's women from across the country, from all walks of life, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And it really provides that opportunity to find connection in your own experience with somebody else. And so I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about your book. Um, you know, we, we've we've talked about this being a really difficult, grueling journey. So your your man, you have a little boy. He's three and a half. You're working. You're a wife. You're um, you're you're living your life, and and this is so challenging. What was it during those days that were so difficult? What gave you the strength just to keep keep pushing forward every day? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say it was the project that I created that I created for myself because I when I felt the worst be when Casey would send the pictures and even though I'm falling apart like uh, my eyes are glued shut because of oh, I don't know why it's so much so, you know, there's so much disgustingness that happens when you're going through treatment you're just like I feel and oh and you have no eyebrows and you're bald but the, the pictures just made me feel feel like I can pull it together you know I'll be able to do this again I can pick myself back up uh, so that was that was my my thing but other people have did charcoal drawings and and they've done, um, some people create new, uh, 
Facebook groups just for people that are um, like a Mom Survive More is a, a group that one of my one of the women in the book created that's just for African American or, or Black women who are um, single moms with cancer. I mean, talk about resources there. She's serving a very specific group, and it's just um, we all have our different needs and. Uh, just finding someone like us or someone that's similar to you can be so helpful. Um, like, uh, I'm trying to see if I answered your question enough. What, I mean, it was just my self-expression was what helped me to turn my worst days into my better days. And then finding other women around the country who, who did something similar but did it in their own way was super powerful. It, my way is not your way. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. We're going to air guitar later. You might hate it. <laughs> who's another cancer survivor who also wrote a book um, of stories of individuals. And between the both books, um, what I, I find is that every person is having their own journey. And what's comforting yes. to one person is not comforting to another. And it's finding what works for you. And, and it's trial and error because what, like you say, what works for you, it may not find may not be a place of comfort or reassurance for, for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also why I didn't want to, my, my memoir on its own wasn't what I wanted out there. I wanted to show, I just wanted to show the breadth and the depth of, of quirky, creative things you could do. And hopefully someone sees themselves in that book and then can go see the video of them on the website. Right. So th this, this was my biggest hope really. Oh, well, you just so, took my next question. Yeah. That was it. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, my next question to you is going to be, what is your, what is your greatest hope? Oh, great. No, well, of course, it's to have a resource for someone, no matter what stage and, and place they are in their life. Like if you're, you're uh, metastatic with children or, or stage one. Oh, one thing I want to put a, talk about is, um, People that were women that were stage one didn't want to talk about their experience and were less likely to be in the book because they would diminish their experience and they would say, ah, I didn't have it that bad. So it's not that bad for me. So my experience doesn't shouldn't be included or doesn't count. And that's absolutely not true. The fear, everything is still there. The everything. And so uh, I just want to mention that. And then people that were um, metastatic, it, there's, I also learned so much about how there's a difficult language around the word survivor and survivorship. They don't, that is something that they absolutely do not identify with. And, and it, it becomes very frustrating when they're to this, when, when they don't feel that they're seen in their own, in their own struggles. Uh, so on both, it seems like on both ends of the spectrum, there, there becomes, there's more opportunity to listen and share it in my opinion. Mm -hmm. so, I love yes. that. But my biggest hope is that, that both of those are, individuals on both sides of that spectrum are can find themselves in some of the resources even there's even a woman who's pregnant and, and delivers a, has a baby while while going through treatment in the book so yeah. she's also she actually went to high school with me oh, <laughs> small world <laughs> I know. We hang out in the summer. I go back to Michigan and hang out. So, she's awesome. She 
you know, you've, you've, you've touched on air guitar a couple of times throughout our conversation. And so it was something that got you through your cancer journey. And in fact, your TED Talk, it really talks about this unexpected gift in air guitar throughout your cancer journey. And so what is it about air guitar that provided this comfort and this outlet for you? Yeah, so air guitar is about self-expression, creativity, spontaneity, character development, and also friendship. The air guitar community, the women of air guitar were the first people that I told, you know, other than like maybe an immediate friend or family, but in terms of like a larger group uh, that I told about my diagnosis. And they were just so helpful, and they were the ones that actually... They helped me uh, kind of decide if this glam chemo was too over the top. Like, I really didn't want to make fun or, or be seen as making light of something that's so cancer is tragic. So, uh, so it, it's it's just you know, I love the community. I love everything about it. You know, honestly, I'm not the best air guitarist, and it doesn't matter. I've been doing it for ten years. I'm not stopping now. So, air guitar is just my my goofy outlet. My son. He's seven now. Absolutely thinks it's normal. Mom's air guitar all the time in his book. He just thinks it's hilarious. So, you know, I've just, I've just decided it's, it's just who I'm going to be. And so, like, for example, if I interviewed or get a freelance client, if you Google me, you see all my air guitar at this point. So I just have to own that. I'm, a, I'm owning it forever, you know? It's just who I am. So, you know, I'm a goofball forever. I love that. Well, you and I were talking earlier, and you said something that I loved, and it's embracing the weird. And I absolutely love that. Yep, yep. It's weird. You got to be weird to get through this life, I think, just a little bit. I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, Marquina, uh, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you and reading the stories that you've written and, and looking at all the incredible creative projects that you've put out there. And I really want to sh- thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. You're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.